Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Some of you have asked uh, kind of where I've been. Uh, You know, you spent maybe the last 12 years seeing me almost every week uh, and seeing me a lot more often than you have. And uh, that's because since uh, December, Lisa and I started working with a, a group called Stadia Church Planting. And uh, it's, a, it's an agency that exists so that every child, there's a church for every child in the world. And the mission of, the, of Stadia is, uh, is to plant churches all over the world so that every child has a church to go to. And so we've spent uh, since December working with them, and we just completed our final, what they call a boot camp assessment. And um, so they have actually affirmed and recommended that we go ahead and move forward with working for a, a plant that will launch in January 2025. Uh, and you can go ahead and go to the next slide, um, Mason. And so Restoration LA is an intentional community committed to relational Christian discipleship serving at the intersection of affluence and poverty. Um, The church plant that we're working on will be working in a gentrifying transitional community where there's that intersection of poverty and wealth and social change that often accentuates disparities and oppression. Uh, And our goal is to work in one of those neighborhoods uh, for the sake of the gospel. And so right now, uh, Trevor says, I I need to tell you ways you could be praying for us. Um, So uh, right now, we are working on gathering financial partners. Uh, We are looking at three or four different communities that meet our target area to try to figure out where the need and the resources uh, best align. Uh, And our hope would be, like I said, we're on target to uh, launch in January 2025. And between now and then, it seems like a long time. But there's actually a lot of work uh, to kind of make community relationships, inroads, getting a sense of what people need in particular communities, the struggles they face. Uh, You know, people in Santa Monica on food stamps don't always feel the same struggles that people in another part of LA who are on food stamps face. People who are homeless in Santa Monica don't face the same challenges as homeless people in other parts of the city. So part of 2024 is really kind of getting into understanding the lay of the community, the needs, and how Christian partnerships uh, can help them. So with that, you are in the middle of a series uh, on the Holy Spirit that has been focused on the universal nature of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, Trevor looked at Ephesians 5 that contrasted being drunk on wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we saw in that text was that the Holy Spirit isn't just a private experience that somebody has, but that actually the, inner, uh, the being filled with the Spirit leads to tangible outward expressions that impact the relationships we have and the people we interact with. When Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he didn't say that you had this private experience at home that was just between you and God, but when he talked about being filled with the Spirit, it manifested in the way we interacted with other people. Last week in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Trevor talked about how the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means to have the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the Holy Spirit isn't just for the special Christians. There's this sense sometimes you feel that the Holy Spirit only comes to those who are really Christian or who are super spiritual. But what we saw last week was that the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is for all who will believe, for all who have been baptized according to his will. That it's not just for the super Christians but that the experience of the Holy Spirit is for all believers, for all who put their faith in Jesus, who follow him in the waters of baptism and who give their lives to him. And this week, we're going to look at what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is our deposits. So if you're here, please stand. Uh, If you're at home, you can also stand. Uh, Please stand as we receive the reading of God's word. You're going to join me in reading the bold italics. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, 
When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are, to, who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. Second, uh, first, second Corinthians chapter uh, 1, uh, starting in verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And in Ephesians chapter 4, 30 to 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. Let's pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge that it is a great mystery that the God of the universe, the one who made it all, would put his presence inside each and every one of us and that we, simple humanity, could be to your glory and honor. How do we, Father, bring glory and honor to the living God who holds the universe in the palm of his hands? We confess, Father, that for far too long we have tried to manipulate the Spirit to serve us rather than allowing you to lead us by the Holy Spirit to serve you. Father, we have often asked for the Holy Spirit to work for our comfort and our betterment rather than to lead us for your glory. This morning, Father, we ask that you would set our hearts aright that in this moment the spirit that you have given us as a seal and as a deposit would stir yet again and bring us closer to you. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. When I think about these four texts that that revolve around what Paul talks about in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, four things come to mind. The first is that there's an already but not yet character to our faith. Already but not yet. You'll see Ephesians chapter 1 says this. When you believed, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And it says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You see, he says that the spirits in our life to guarantee something that is yet to come. There's a sense of there's something now. He put his spirit in us for something that is yet to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, He has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And in Ephesians chapter 4 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You get this sense that there's this thing that's happened already. We've already been given the Holy Spirit, but we don't experience everything yet. The Bible tells us we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
but we don't fully experience all of them, do we? There's this sense that God has given us every promise, but we don't always feel like we have them. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been sanctified, and we've been saved. But we don't experience all those things fully, do we? On the one hand, we've been adopted. But sometimes we feel orphaned. We've been redeemed. But sometimes we feel unredeemable. We've been sanctified. But sometimes we feel marred by sin. We've been saved. But sometimes we feel lost. We have these promises from God, and they are ours. But we don't rightly often have them in the moment, do we? Bob Marshall has been given new life in God, but he's fighting cancer. Tom Lubring has been given new life in God, but he still needs a knee surgery for the arthritis and the, and the decay of that knee. God has promised us freedom from sin, but we have men in this church who are leading a, a, a group for men with, struggling with sexual brokenness. God has promised us reconciliation with him. We have been reconciled with God. But none of us are with him now. We love Jesus, but we're not with him now. Our citizenship is in heaven, but all of your addresses still have some place on earth. There's all these promises that God has given us. They are already ours. Those promises are ours. The work has already been done. We have been sanctified, adopted, redeemed, and saved. We have been given new life. We have been given the resurrection from the dead. We have been given the promises of heaven. They are already ours. And yet we don't experience them yet. Well, why does that matter? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have to understand we live in that tension of a world that is rife with sin. But the kingdom of God has come, and it's breaking through and advancing. It is already here, but it is not yet fully bestowed. And in the same way, we live in that tension. If you feel sometimes that you don't think that you can continue because you feel the burden of sin, don't let the not yet take away from the promise of what you have already if you feel the brokenness of your body, that you don't feel like you can do it again, don't let the not yet take away from the promise that you will have a new body and a new heaven and in a new earth. If you feel like you have woken up with the same sin today that you have woken up every day of the last 30 years of your life, don't let the not yet of the sin that is still in your life take away from your, the promise that you have been forgiven of your sin, made new, and that there's a day when sin will no longer have any hold on your life. The call for us Christians is that in the midst of a world that seems rife with sin, where the kingdom is breaking through and advancing but is not fully here, that we live in the tension of the already and not yet. Maybe this morning you feel the weight of the not yet. You feel like you can't do it anymore. Don't let the not yet take away from the promise that you already have it. Will you hold on? Will you hold on to the faith that says, I don't have it yet, but it's coming. It's coming. We dare not give up when we're on the precipice of receiving all that God has promised. That in his divine wisdom, we live in the time between the ages when the kingdom is breaking forth and still advancing. 
So I see from these texts all the promises that, there's, that we have the Spirit, but something is yet to come. But these passages also tell us something else, that we belong to God. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and belong to God. This is what Ephesians 1 says again. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. 2 Corinthians will say this. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us. Second, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? The Greek word is sragizo, and it refers to a seal that was often put on royal documents. You see, kings and important documents, as they were written, would have a, 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 a drop of wax put on it, and the king would stick his ring on it to mark that it was his. It marked that this was something important. It belonged to the king. If the king had something that belonged to them, they would put a seal on the home. So you'll see places in the Middle East where there's seals in doors and imprinted in rocks or that used to hang in places because it was a mark of this belongs to somebody important and it was who it belonged to. I got this uh, wedding invitation, far fancier than the ones we had for ours, and uh, it's got this neat seal right here, this little piece of wax that has an imprint. This tells me who this invitation belongs to. It shows that this invitation belongs to these people and it shows that there was importance, that this was an important thing that they were sending to me. It shows their ownership, their, it belongs to them, and it pertains to them. When Daniel was placed in the lion's den, King Darius put a seal on the outside of it to signify that what was in there belonged to him, that it was put there by royal decree, and that it belonged to the king. When Jesus was placed in his tomb, Pilate put a seal on it. Why did he put a seal on it? Because he wanted people to know that was, what was in there was by royal decree of Rome through Pilate, that his word put it there, that his decree put it there, and that what was in there was important and belonged to Rome. You see, the seal signified ownership and belonging, but it also signified value and authenticity. You see, the royal trash never got a seal, but royal decrees did. Royal prisoners that the empire wanted to say, we own, we, they are ours, we were in control of them, they got sealed when they got put in prison or in tombs or in caves. You see, those seals symbolize value and belonging. So why is that important? You may think that you don't belong to God, but the seal of the Holy Spirit is a reminder that you belong to God. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to the chances of evolutionary factors working in the world for naturalistic reasons with no purpose at all. You belong to God. The seal of the Holy Spirit doesn't just say you belong to him, but it says that you are authentically his. Have you ever felt that, like, if people knew who you were, they might think you were an imposter? Do you ever feel like when people say, man, you're such a great Christian, that you're like, oh, if they only knew? When, people tell, when your parents tell you, you are a child of God, do you sometimes feel like, no, not really? The seal of the Holy Spirit says you are authentically his. You are not an imposter. You struggle with sin, but the final word is not your sexual addiction, but that your identity is in Christ, that you belong to him. He owns you. He shouts to the world that you belong to me. 
You have problems in your marriage. You don't treat your spouse right. You're, you don't feel like you treat your spouse like God would. And in that way, you've not represented God. And in that moment when you feel like I'm an imposter, God says, you're mine. I own you. You belong to me. You see, he shouts the declaration that you belong to him in the power of the Holy Spirit, which seals your life. What else does it mean? What does belonging to Christ mean? Well, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, signifying that you belong to God. That's not only that you belong to him, that he owns you and says, you're mine, but you being his means you will not be lost. Your life isn't hanging by a thread. Your life isn't so fragile that if you mess up, you're gone. But Jesus says that those who belong to him will not be lost. Do you realize you can dare to do things that no one else will do? You can be dared to be made a fool for the sake of the gospel. You can get up when you made a mistake. You can fail 100 times and get up 101 on the 101 time. Why? Because you will not be lost. Because you belong to God and he's going to hold you in the hollow of his hand. But what else does it mean to belong to God? This isn't very popular what I'm about to say. But if you belong to God, he owns you, and your will is no longer yours. When I become, when God takes ownership of my life, what I want is somewhat irrelevant. I can say, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. I can say, God, I don't like that, but I'm still going to do it, because what God has called me to is what I will obey. You see, belonging to God and being owned by God means that his will reigns supreme in my life. I don't get the option of saying, I want to do this part of faith, but then I'm going to do my thing over here. I don't get to say, I'm going to pick and choose the things I want to follow, but then I'm going to create my own life over here. You see, when Jesus puts his seal on us and we belong to him and he owns us, we are no longer fans who get to pick and choose but instead his will becomes supreme and reigns over us. The world tells us that marriage is for convenience and mutual benefit. But Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife and marries another except for marital unfaithfulness, he commits adultery. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. But we live in a world that says accumulate large 401ks and IRAs and set up your retirement and put everything in it so that when you retire, you can have something to hold on to. We live in a world that tells us sexuality is what you want to make of it and is simply for your pleasure. But God says that we are made male and female in the image of God. He created them. And we're told that sex and sexuality were created in God for his pleasure, for his honor, and for his enjoyment. Do you realize that your sex and sexuality are holy endeavors because they are sacred and made by God? And in a world that says they are mundane, banal, and can change on a whim, Scripture tells us that those are predefined by God. So guess what? As someone who belongs to God, as someone who has been owned by God, my desires, my will, those are all secondary to the call of Christ. I don't get to say, I'll go wherever you want, but not there. I'll do whatever you want, but not that. I'll take every blessing you want, but not that one. That doesn't exist because as those who are owned by God, his will reigns, his will reigns supreme over us. And so when we think about the Holy Spirit and what Paul tells us here, we realize there's an already not yet component to our faith. We recognize 
that there's a seal of belonging that comes from the Holy Spirit. But we also recognize that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, yet again. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. 2 Corinthians 1 will say this. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This seal, this ownership that God has over us is also a deposit, guaranteeing that there is something better. What's a deposit? You see, the Greek word here is arbon, and it meant a portion of the final payment. You paid a portion of the final payment that signaled that you were good for it. All of us know what a security deposit is, right? Have any of you had to put a deposit first from last month? You pay a deposit because you basically say, I'm going to pay this now so you know I'm good for it. And then you're going to make the rest of the payments and you know at the end that you'll get whatever you paid for, right? So like if, I get, if you're buying something from me, you get, pay a deposit. You don't pay the full thing, but you give me enough so that I know you're serious. And it's kind of like, okay, because you've given me this, I know that you'll make the rest of the payments and you're good for it. Right? That makes sense? All of us like, understand what this, how this works. So there's a sense that the deposit is that payment. And in fact, a lot of people will tell you that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives now is a deposit guaranteeing what's going to happen. You get a taste of heaven now, so you know that you're going to experience heaven later. Theodore, the church father, said, and commenting on this exact thing, said that there was an irony here. The irony was that though the miracles were happening, though the miraculous was happening, God was pointing them to something greater. This is the crazy irony in today's world. We often so focus on trying to find miraculous things that we sometimes forget that God has something greater for us in store. We're focusing on getting miracles now, but there's something better in store for us than miracles. Whatever miracle you think you've been looking for, can you imagine that God has something better in store for you? Theodoret says that the Spirit's guarantee was to point to something greater than the miracles the Spirit was manifesting. The Spirit is a guarantee that we have something better than what we have now. But here's an unusual irony. The Holy Spirit is a deposit to us guaranteeing what we'll possess. Am I buying from God or is God buying from me? God's not buying anything from me. Do you get the irony? God isn't buying anything from me, but he's paying the deposit. You see, if you come to me and say, I'm going to buy your house, I'm going to ask for the deposit and regular payments. But if I say, you bought my house, but I'm the one who gave your deposit, and I'm the one making all the payments, and I'm giving you the house at the end, how is it that you're buying the house from me? It's nonsensical, right? So when Paul tells us that the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what we're going to possess, there's this almost nonsensical nature of it, because guess what? God owes us nothing, and he's not buying it from us. So the divine irony is that this God who seals us and belongs to us is also the God willing to pay the price for our redemption. God's going to pay the deposit that we should pay. We bear the burden of the price of sin and the brokenness in the world. We bear the burden of all that is wrong in the world. We've contributed to it. We have a responsibility to pay for it. We have, that's just how justice works, right? But in the midst of that, God not only calls to, that he belongs to us, but he's paying our deposit and he's making all the payments. Do you catch the irony of this? He's the deposit, but we're the ones who are supposed to be making payments. 
You're the one who's supposed to be doing good to earn your way to make right. Buddhist, Hindu, take, fill in your religion. You're supposed to be bearing the burden of making right. But the Holy Spirit reminds us, not only does he belong to, that we belong to him, but that he's the deposit. He's paid the price, and he's making the payments. So when I think about what it means to belong to God and to have his reign over me and to yield my will to his, I'm ten times more likely to yield to a God who's willing to make the payments for my penalties. See, I can trust the will of God because in the midst of a world gone wrong, who's going to pay the price for my salvation, redemption, adoption, sanctification, and salvation? It is God. You see, the irony that he's paying the deposit gives me the confidence to trust the, the rules and the calling and, the, and, and the, the will. God's will for my life is trustworthy because he's willing to pay the price for, for my sin. When I'm far from God, when I could care less what God wants to, to do, he's going to pay the penalty of my sin. Guess what? I'm going to trust that God all the way from here till heaven because the God who is willing to own me is also the God willing to pay the price that I should pay. But lastly, not only is it already but not yet, not only are we sealed to belong, but not only is it a deposit, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Ambrosister, the church father, said this about it. He said, grieving the Holy Spirit was like cutting short the work of the Spirit in your life. It was making yourself unavailable to God. It's very interesting when you think about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that it's like a reverse demonic possession. Let me explain. You see, when somebody is demon-possessed, a demon comes into their life or demons come into their life, makes them do things they would not otherwise want to do, and manifest in weird diseases that they would not want, and it takes control of their lives. Some of us like to think that the Holy Spirit comes in our life in a reverse demonic possession, makes us do good that we would not want to do, and like reverses everything. So it's like a demonic possession, but just in reverse. And while in some senses the Spirit works with us to do things that we would not otherwise do, the early church never thought that. You see, the early church thought of the Holy Spirit as intimately present with us, but in partnership with us. You see, Paul even says the gifts of the Spirit are subject to the control of the one who has them. Peter says that, that, the, that the Spirit works in conjunction with us. And the early church saw that we are in connection with the Holy Spirit. We can, as, the, as Ambrosister said, cut short the work of the Spirit in our lives. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. You can put out the Spirit's fire. You can also fan the flame of the Spirit, which Paul will say to Timothy, fan into the flames gifts of the Spirit that are in you. So we have this interaction with the Holy Spirit where our actions and our choices can interact with the Spirit so that the Spirit is either encouraged or discouraged, made full or shut down, made more alive or, or depleted. We interact with the Spirit in such a way that what, how we interact with the Spirit determines what the Spirit will do in our life. Some of us, if you go back to Ephesians chapter uh, 4, Mason, it says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Did it ever occur to you that you might feel like your faith is a flicker and that there's no spiritual fire because all you've been doing is putting out the Spirit's fire? You've been holding on to bitterness, 
You've chosen to be rageful and angry. You've chosen to slander rather than to seek reconciliation. You've chosen to be mean rather than compassionate. Rather than seeking the good of those who harm us, we want them to get theirs. We fight fire with fire. We choose to go a path that isn't that of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul will say this, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. We have this tendency in our lives where, where Paul says, reject every kind of evil. We like to flirt with the evil. How close can we get to it without actually doing it? Maybe we'll just get a little taste of it, but not fully do it. And then we wonder why the Spirit's not being manifest more and more in our lives, because all we're doing is quenching the Spirit. We're not listening to admonitions and seeking whether or not they're true that we can follow them. We just want to ignore the ones we don't like and follow the ones we do like. Maybe this morning, if you feel like you're far from God and the faith that you have is just a little flicker, maybe you ought to take a moment to repent and turn to God once again. Say to God, I'm sorry for living in the not yet when I need to live in the already. I've forgotten that I belong to you and that I represent who you called me to be. I forgot that as you owning me means your ways are my ways. I get to represent you in the world. I get to model what God is like when he shows up in a room. Maybe I've forgotten what it looks like to lean into the spirit because there's somebody I don't like, but I'm going to treat them with compassion and care. Maybe this morning, as you think about your faith, and you may feel like you're on a lifeline barely making it, maybe it's not that the Holy Spirit is weak, but that you've chosen to, to quench and grieve the Spirit. But I want you to see the tenderness here, church. You see, the word for grieve is the Greek word lupeo. And it's an active tense. And when Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says, do not hurt do not cause sorrow for the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the God who made the world, the God who holds the Milky Way on his fingertip and the universe in his hand, the God who knows how many hairs are on Scott Comer's head, the God who knows how many hairs are on my child's head in my wife's womb, the God who knows all of that, can be sorrowed by us. That he hurts. He feels pain. He grieves. If you're a parent, you probably know what it's like to love your kid and see them make choices you know that are harmful. You know your kid has great potential to be a great engineer, uh, world leader, and instead they're just wasting their way stoned Life away stone playing video games. No offense to you gamers. Maybe, maybe, maybe as a parent, you see how much potential your child has, and they're about to give up right when they're about to get to the finish line. Or maybe you have someone who like tripped, and you're like, no, get up, because I see all that you're becoming, and they give up, and it breaks your heart. Do you see the tenderness of God when Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine that the God who made the world, who's willing to pay your deposit and make all your payments, is also the God that loves you so intimately and carefully that he can grieve and have sorrow for you. And so when I think about what it means to be sealed by God, by the Holy Spirit, and to be owned by him, 
I will trust his will over mine because he's willing to make the payments, because he's, gonna, he's willing to make the deposit, and he hurts for me. That's a God I can trust. When I'm uncertain about the wisdom of God's teaching in a world that keeps telling me something different, I'm going to trust God's teaching because it's a God who's willing to sacrifice his life to make my deposit and make all my payments, and he's a God who will hurt for me. Krishna doesn't hurt for you. Buddha doesn't hurt for you. Naturalistic evolution doesn't hurt for you. Confucius doesn't hurt for you. But God, the one who seals you with the Holy Spirit, hurts for you. So this morning, church, as we think about what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, may we remember that we live in that in-between place, in a world where evil exists, but the kingdom has come and is breaking forth. May we know that in the midst of that crazy world, God declares and puts a seal over us that you and I belong to him, and none can be taken from him. And even as we belong to him, we have a guarantee of something greater in advance. We have something more than this world to look forward to. And that ultimately, we have a God who will hurt in compassion and grief for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I confess that it's much easier to think of the Holy Spirit as a little genie that helps me do these great tricks that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. It's far less sexy to think of a Holy Spirit who stands with us in our suffering and that weeps with us. It's far less exciting to say that the Holy Spirit helps me to submit to the will of God when I don't want to. And it's uncomfortable to think that sometimes the Holy Spirit weeps for me. And yet, God, there's something amazing and beautiful that in your tears is a tender, sacrificial love for each and every one of us. Father, this morning, some of us need to confess that we have quenched the Holy Spirit. We have grieved you and we have put out the fire. You called us to put aside bitterness and anger, slander and self-centeredness. But we have neglected compassion. We have neglected the ways of peace. We have neglected the ways of service. But some of us have to confess, God, that in a world that has told us that we can live better, we have chosen to follow the ways of the world rather than your will. Father, in this moment, help us once again, to turn from sin and cling to you. And may your Holy Spirit once again remind us of the seal and the promise that you, O Lord, have placed upon us, your children. Father, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.